in Matthew 25, Jesus gives us a direct picture and a, a revelation of what is going to happen on the day of judgment and in the end of all things. And uh, it may not seem at first like it has a great deal to do with hospitality, um, but I hope to show you today that it, it does. How hospitality fits into the last day and how the question of what will we do with Jesus feeds directly into how we will spend eternity. So in light of that, brothers and sisters, let's hear together Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. These are the very words of God. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. May God now add his blessing to our reading and preaching of his word this morning. I don't often uh, recommend reality TV shows as a place to get good biblical wisdom. Um, in fact, uh, if you watch reality TV shows, uh, probably all you're going to see are the destructive effects of the foolishness of sin. That's probably all that you're going to really get out of it. Uh, perhaps, though, there's one exception. Uh, the TV show uh, Undercover Boss. Maybe some of you are familiar with the show. If you're not, the premise is that a CEO or an executive, a higher up of some company, will go undercover as an entry-level employee in their company. And they will work for a week or two and get a feel for what is it really like to work here at my company? What's it really like to be an employee? They'll see things like middle management people who are abusive and tyrannical. They'll see uh, hardworking uh, underlings who are struggling to get by and they'll hear all these stories. 
And then at the end of a week or two of working at this company undercover, uh, they will have the employees they interacted with come and visit their headquarters. And they will reveal that, in fact, the whole time it was them, the CEO, the boss, the owner of the company, something like that. And often they will reward those whom they have seen doing a good job, uh, who they have been struck by as particularly good employees, uh, and often those employees who have revealed themselves to be bad or corrupt or dishonest will be punished and reprimanded, sometimes even fired. It's happened in the show. In many ways, what we see in Matthew 25 is Jesus telling us beforehand that he is essentially playing undercover boss. Uh, that that is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying that in the end of all things, he will reveal himself and show that, in fact, he was hiding among a particular group of people the whole time. And that how those particular people were treated is how he himself was treated. And we learn from Matthew 25, the very words of Jesus, that how he is treated hiding in this group of people is very significant. It literally shapes the eternal destinies of all the nations. Everyone who stands before Jesus will be divided according to this dividing line. What did they do with Christ? How did they treat him as he was hiding in this particular group of people? And you might ask, how is this about hospitality? Well, in many ways, it's exactly what Matthew 25 is all about. I mean, just consider the kinds of things that Jesus talks about here. Feeding people, giving them drink, clothing those who are naked, taking in strangers, visiting those who are sick, visiting those who are in prison. It's hospitality. It's hospitality 101. It's what Matthew 25 is all about. Did I show hospitality to Jesus hiding among this group of people, or did I refuse it and not show it to him? Now, Matthew 25 sometimes gets us tripped up, and maybe you're even having this thought right now. Pastor Keith, isn't Matthew 25 about uh, sort of how we treat the poor and needy? Well, first of all, maybe a good question is, why do we seem to instinctively want to label some other group that we have no part with as the needy people? I think that's a really good question for us to wrestle with. Why am I so instinctively driven to say that the needy are these people over here, and certainly not me, as if somehow the needy were a different kind of human being than me, as if when God had created all things and he created man and woman, he actually created two classes of human beings. He created me over here, self-reliant, capable, unneeding, and then over here he created all these poor people who are needy, as if I didn't have any needs. Is it not true that every single one of us in this room needs all of the things that Jesus talks about in Matthew 25? You need food. You need drink. You need clothing and shelter. And yes, like it or not, you need visiting. You need human companionship. You need people to befriend you and come around you. You need all of the things that Jesus says in Matthew 25. But secondly, I would, I would think if we're paying attention, we can clearly see that this is not just the generic poor and needy, 
Mother Teresa, of course, the, the very prominent woman who went and ministered in, in India for a, much of her life to the poorest of the poor in India. Uh, she was often quoted as saying that she saw uh, God in the faces of the poor. And in a sense, that's very true. But it's not exactly what Matthew 25 is talking about. Look with me again at verse 40. What did Jesus say in verse 40? The king will answer to the righteous and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. The group that Jesus has in mind, the people who receive the hospitality in Matthew 25, are not just sort of the generic, unnamed, poor, and needy of the world. God does call us to care for them in different places, but that's not who he's talking about here. He's talking about his brethren. Who are his brethren? Well, he identified them earlier in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 12, verse 50. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Those who are followers of Christ, those who do the will of God through him, are who Jesus views as his brethren, his family. And so when Jesus presents this scenario to us in Matthew 25, and he talks about this group, the least of these my brethren, and how they're treated, he's talking about the church. He's talking about you. The, the dividing line will be, how did you treat my church? Because I was hiding among the least of them. The least of these, my brethren, my people, my church, I was hiding among them, and the thing that will determine eternal destinies is how did I treat them? Did I welcome them? Did I care for them? Did I provide for them? Or did I scorn them and shun them and turn away from them? Jesus looks at how his church is treated, and he takes it personally. That's what Matthew 25 is all about. And it has everything to do with hospitality. I want to point out to you that what Jesus presents for us here in Matthew 25, uh, these are not sort of exceptional things to do. They're not the things that only superstar Christians are capable of. These are the basics, right? Uh, feeding people, giving them something to drink, giving them some clothing if you have it, sharing some space with them in a shelter, visiting them when they're sick or in prison. These are basic things. The basics of hospitality. It's not complicated. And I also want to point out to you that nowhere does Jesus say, uh, I was needy and you gave me money. I was destitute and you sent me a check. There is a difference between hospitality and charity. We're called to do both. Charity has a part in the Christian life, but they're not the same. Every year around Christmas time, uh, I get the... Uh, uh, the little uh, notice from Samaritan's Purse about all their different needs that they have, and it's one of my favorite things to do at the end of the year, to go through and look at all the different options I have, and where do I want to give some money to Samaritan's Purse, because I think they do a lot of good in the world, specifically in the name of Jesus. And so I'll go and think through, okay, I've got $500 I want to give to Samaritan's Purse, and it's kind of fun to go through, and where do I want to give this, and what do I want to support with this? It's charity, and it's good, and we need to do that, but that's not hospitality. That's not what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 25. Charity can be personal, but it does not need to be personal. In fact, in our digital world, increasingly, it's impersonal. It's faceless. It's just giving money 
to some cause for someone else to do something on your behalf, which has its place. But it's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus, in Matthew 25, is talking about hospitality. And unlike charity, hospitality is always intensely personal. It's one of the reasons we shy away from it so much, isn't it? It's easy to write a check. It's easy to give some money if we have it. It's a lot harder to open my door and tell somebody to come over, to share my life with somebody, to welcome them into my space and let them see how things really are. Charity is impersonal. Hospitality is always personal. It is inescapably personal. Hospitality, according to Jesus here in Matthew 25, is also not complicated. It's very simple. Feeding people, sharing meals with people, sharing space with people, sharing what I might have with somebody, visiting them if they need a visit, welcoming a visit if I need a visit. Like many things in the Christian life, hospitality is not complicated. It's very simple. It's just hard to do. But why? Why is it so hard? It's not complicated. It's very, very simple. It's very straightforward. Why is it so complicated? Or why is it so hard, rather? Well, I, I would put before you, perhaps, and I think, I think I have the Lord's voice with me here, that the reason that hospitality is so hard for us is not because it's complicated. It's because of our sin. It's because of our own desires, our own wills. We love our own way of doing things, our own life, our own comforts more than we love the things of God. If you ever want to be challenged in the area of hospitality, and I would encourage you to welcome that, it's good for us to be challenged, Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, will challenge you. I love it. I love it for that exact reason. In her closing chapter, she says this about a household that is unable to practice hospitality. She says, one kind of household is absolutely incompetent at the practice of hospitality, utterly and completely incapable. It is as useless as grasping at the wind. What kind of household is it? The household that loves things too much and loves people too little cannot honor God through the practice of radically ordinary hospitality. Hear that again. The, the household that loves things too much and loves people too little cannot honor God through the practice of radical ordinary hospitality. The household that has too much and thinks too highly of material possessions has become seduced by the idols of acquisition and achievement. If you love acquisition and achievement, you will never practice hospitality. You might have like-minded people, right? You might entertain. You might have like-minded people who come and bow before your idols, but you won't ever practice hospitality. It's not that you won't have people over. It's not that you won't have company, but you will have it for a very different reason. You'll have people over to bow at the same idols you do. Right? Admire the new carpet you just paid for. Admire uh, the new paint that you just put up in the house. Admire your collection of, of you know, artifacts or something like that. These things that I treasure more than I treasure people made in the image and likeness of God. I may have people over to come and admire them with me, but that's not hospitality. 
And if we are so consumed with our stuff and our own comforts and our own desires for how life should look, our own desire for control, I'm telling you this as somebody who struggles with it too. But if that's what's number one in our life, we will never practice biblical hospitality. Only if love for God and love for my neighbor is at the forefront of our, of our minds will I ever truly practice the kind of hospitality that Jesus talks about in Matthew 25. I wonder what kind of excuses uh, the wicked might have in Judgment Day here. When Jesus says to them, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, because you didn't do all these things for me, I wonder what kind of excuses they might try to come up with. Maybe, I think one definitely will be ignorance, right? Ignorance. Jesus, we didn't know it was you. We, we didn't recognize you. Many times on that show, Undercover Boss, when those middle management tyrants find out that it was the CEO they were dealing with the whole time, oh, all of a sudden, their demeanor changes. Oh, man, if I, uh, I'm, boss, I'm sorry. Like, I, I didn't know. I, you know, of course, I would never have treated you that way if I had known who you were, if I had recognized you. I wonder if the wicked will do the same. Jesus, we didn't know it was you. It's not fair. If you would have just revealed yourself to us, we would have acted differently. Can I simply point out to you, that's what sycophants do. That's what yes-men do. Treat people differently based on what they can get out of them. That's not what disciples of Jesus Christ do. Disciples of Jesus Christ don't look at him on the day of judgment and say, Jesus, if we would have known it was you, we would have acted differently. I wonder if they'll protest that they lacked ability. I think this is something that many of us, including my own family, we deal with. We come up with God's command to practice hospitality, and we start thinking about all the ways that we're not capable of it. I lack the ability, right? Maybe the wicked on the day of judgment, maybe they'll tell Jesus, Jesus, we, we couldn't. We didn't have enough to spare. We didn't have enough for ourselves. We couldn't feed you and give you drink and clothe you and welcome you. It was too much. We didn't have the capacity for it. As I was thinking about that, I was reminded of when Olivia and I used to live on the east side of Charlotte, long before we came to Trinity Chapel. Uh, we lived in East Charlotte, a place that is not high income. Uh, it's, it's certainly not um, the slums. I mean, there are parts that, that are like that, uh, a little bit hoodie, but um, it is, it, it, it's relatively just a low income place to be. And there's, there's gang violence, there's drug dealing, um, there's, there's, you know, Section 8 housing, there's all kinds of stuff that make it a difficult place to be. But there's also a large population of, of refugees and foreigners who live there. People from places like Ethiopia and Egypt, there's a large number of, of Nepali uh, refugees from Southeast Asia who basically live there in, in slum apartment places that they've been um, given to live. And, and they're not nice, they're very low income, they're people who don't have much. And Olivia, at the time, was a speech therapist. And she'd go to these homes to go and serve uh, the kids of these families. She worked with kids three and under at the time. And she went and did home care, essentially. She'd go to their house, go to their preschool, uh, but mostly go to their homes. And it was fascinating to me the difference between when Olivia would go to a native, uh, and, and 
Native American, an, uh, an American-born person's home, and the difference between when she would go to the Egyptian home, or the, uh, or the Ethiopian home, or the Nepali home. It was fascinating because she'd go there, and without fail, every one of those women in those families would try to give her something. Every time she went, they'd try to give her tea. They'd try to feed her some food. Even if, it, she said one time, it was just a woman gave me a handful of blueberries to eat. That was it. She told the comical story once of one of the uh, Ethiopian women, I believe it was, who you know, sort of sadly confessed to Olivia that she didn't have anything to give her, but let Olivia essentially go into her fridge and take one of her yogurt packs. And Olivia leaves the house with this pack of yogurt, no spoon to eat it, and she's just got to go on to her next appointment. Well, what's happening there? What was happening is those women were adamant. You are in my home. You are my guest. You don't get to leave here without receiving something from me. You don't get to leave here without me trying to feed you and give you something to drink and even trying to have conversation with you. These were not women who had a lot going for them. In, in many cases, they were almost destitute. And yet they refused to not practice hospitality, to not share something with my wife as a guest in their home. Can I put forward to you, Christian, that perhaps our capacity as 21st century Western people, perhaps our capacity for hospitality is a lot more about our attitude than it is our ability. We have the ability to do this. Is any one of us really going to try and say that we don't have the ability that an Egyptian refugee has or that a Nepali refugee family has? Are any of us really going to sit here and say, I am not as capable of hospitality as a refugee family living in a slum apartment with only yogurt in the fridge to share? I hope not. We'd be lying. Friends, your capacity for hospitality has almost nothing to do with your ability right now. It has everything to do with your attitude. Part of the reason I felt so called to preach this sermon series, one reason was that I think I saw in God's word a multitude of blessings that we miss out on if we don't practice hospitality. There are a multitude of just good things. The Christian life is a lot more enjoyable when we practice hospitality and share it with each other, giving and receiving love and, and welcome to each other. It's a lot more enjoyable to be in that kind of a church. And it's a lot more enjoyable to be in that kind of a neighborhood. To be that kind of a neighbor to people is a lot more fun than being the recluse who never talks to anybody and who just goes straight into the garage and straight into the house, right? But the second reason that I felt so pushed by the Lord to preach this sermon series, fully aware that some of you were going to be really put off by it, fully aware that this risked one of those occasions where people say, that's it, I'm done, I'm out of here, I can't put up with this anymore, right? We've had moments like that. And I'll, I'll confess to you, I wrestled with a lot of fear in beginning this sermon series. It has been hard over the last five years to watch as our church will get new people and then they dip. 
And we get new people and they take off. And I was sitting there going, Lord, if I preach this sermon series, don't you understand? Don't you understand how precarious this is? If, if one person gets slightly offended by something I say in a sermon or if they feel like I'm calling them out personally, they're out, they're done, they're, they're moving on. I, I can't do that. I can't afford to do that right now. Things are just starting to get good again. Let's, let's not ruin it right now. But I felt pressed into it, and I felt that the Lord wouldn't let me get away from it. And part of the reason, a big part of the reason, is what Jesus says in Matthew 25. Your eternal destiny hangs on love for Christ expressed in love for his people. My job as your pastor, before it is anything else, is to get you ready to die and face Jesus in judgment. We heard it in Hebrews 13, didn't we? It was read for us this morning. Obey those who rule over you, especially those who preach the word. Why? Because they will have to give an account. When you stand before Jesus on judgment day, I'm going to have to be there. And if any way you have fallen short, I'm going to have to answer for it. And, and this reality that how I treat Jesus as he hides among the least of these his brethren, that that will determine your eternal destiny. I couldn't get away from this. I hope that, it, that even if you have not enjoyed this sermon series, I hope that you can at least appreciate the fact that you have a pastor who is concerned enough about your soul to risk telling you something that might offend you if it means your eternal life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That's what Paul says about his ministry. He's saying to the Corinthians, I know that you and me, we all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to give an account for the things we did in the body. I am terrified of that. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I'm trying to persuade you in light of what God has revealed to us. If, you, if you've at all been moved, even maybe negatively moved by these messages, don't brush it off. Jesus says in Matthew 25 that your eternal life is in the balance. This is a matter of life and death. How you treat the church as Jesus hides in the least of them, is going to be the dividing line on the day of judgment. So don't brush it off. Don't just say, oh, well, it's Pastor Keith's opinion. No, it's not. I didn't invent hospitality. Rosaria Butterfield didn't invent hospitality. Jesus invented hospitality. Jesus tells us to do these things. And today, Jesus warns us about the consequences. He warns us about what is coming at the end of all things and how our hospitality that we show one another fits into it. Don't brush these off. Maybe you feel convicted, maybe you feel a little angry, that's fine, you're allowed to be angry at your pastor, but before you do anything else, before you just brush it off and try to move on, at least go to the Lord. Ask the Lord to deal plainly with you about this. Go like David did in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God will answer that kind of prayer. 
I know you get frustrated sometimes that you feel like God doesn't answer your prayers. Uh, if you ask God for that, he'll give it to you. If you go to the Lord and you say, Lord, search my heart on this issue and reveal to me if in any way I am going in a wicked path. And if so, reveal it so I might go in your way everlasting. Prayerfully search your soul. Ask yourself that question before the Lord. Don't just give the quick brush off response, but ask yourself, do I love my stuff, my comforts, my plans more than Jesus? I know it's hard. Y'all got to understand I'm talking to you as someone who struggles with this. You might be surprised, but I am a naturally introverted person. Being around people for a long time makes me feel kind of drained and I need to get kind of alone for a while and just recharge my battery a little bit. Some of y'all are like that in this room. It doesn't make me, uh, you know, it's not an excuse. Doesn't mean I can tell Jesus, well, Jesus, you know, I'm different, right? I, I don't have to practice hospitality because I'm not wired that way. Well, then rewire me, Jesus. Rewire me so that I won't put my preferences and my desires above your will. Rewire my heart so that I learn to love the things that you love, even if it comes at the expense of how I wish things could be. Examine your life. Do I have this good fruit? Jesus said in Luke 6, 43, a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. If, if I look at my life today, and my life is marked by an absence of these things that Jesus commands and Jesus is looking for, if I look at my life and I say, I don't do this, it's an indication that something is wrong in my heart. And I need to go to the Lord and ask him to change my heart. Change me from being a bad tree bearing bad fruit to being a good tree bearing good fruit. I want my life to match up with what Jesus desires. And friends, I am not trying to be overly serious, but I don't think I can emphasize it enough. This is a matter of life and death. Your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. The answer to that question, what will you do with Jesus. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're going, Keith, this has been a challenging series because in many ways it's kind of a do series, right? There's a lot of things that I'm supposed to do. Well, what about Jesus? I don't believe that Matthew 25 is teaching that your salvation depends on your good works. Let me make that crystal clear. Uh, your practicing of hospitality is not what saves or unsaves you, All right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 God says in his word, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. But you've got to remember that there's verse 10 in that chapter too. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm not saved by my good works. You won't be saved by your hospitality. But that is the resulting fruit that comes out of being saved by God's grace. Hospitality doesn't reward you with eternal life, but it does reveal that you have eternal life. When Jesus was eating lunch at a Pharisee's house and a sinful, wicked woman came in and started washing his feet with her tears and anointing his feet with her oil and, and drying her, 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 his feet with her hair, all these different things she was doing, Luke chapter 7, the Pharisee was offended, right? Do you remember what Jesus said, though? He told the story about two debtors who both owed a man sums of money. One owed 50 denarii, 50 days wages, probably about $10,000 in our current day currency. 
and the second one owed 500 denarii, ten times that amount. He owed $100,000. And Jesus says both of them, the creditor forgave both debtors. Which one of them will love him more? And the Pharisee rightly answered, well, the one whom he forgave more. Jesus teaches us in that picture, that story, the one who has been forgiven little will love little. If you think that God didn't have to do all that much to make you uh, a saved person, if you think you just needed a little bit of tidying up, God just kind of had to come and reshuffle your deck a little bit and just put a few things in order and now you're a good person. If that's what you think about yourself, Jesus says you will love little. If you love little, it's because you don't understand the forgiveness of sins. And perhaps you may not even have it yet. But those who have been forgiven much, those who rightly see how much Jesus had to go through, who see how much God had to do for me to get me to the place that I am today and to bring me to the place that he's bringing me, when I see that I have been forgiven an insurmountable debt, it makes me love much. It's easy to love when I see the reality of my forgiveness. The wicked on the day of judgment, they're not going to have their forgiveness taken away because they didn't practice hospitality. Jesus is showing us that their lack of hospitality demonstrates they never had forgiveness of sins. They never knew what it meant to be cleansed, to be made right with God by his grace and not by their own works. God's grace in you, Christian, produces the good fruit of good works like hospitality. And we who have been forgiven much must learn and are learning by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, learning to love much, learning to love sacrificially the way that God loved me sacrificially. There's nothing but grace for you, Christian. And by God's grace at work in you, he is transforming you into a person who loves much. So that on the day of judgment, when Jesus pulls back the mask and he reveals that all along he was that undercover boss, you will be able to hear those words from him. Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Don't miss out on it. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so good. And Lord, we thank you for your astounding goodness to us who do not deserve it. Oh Lord, we pray that we would be searched out by you. Oh Lord, I pray for myself personally with the words of David that you would search me, oh God, and know my heart. Reveal if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh Lord, as we move forward from this sermon series, as we move on to a new sermon series in Matthew's Gospel next week, oh Lord, help us not to brush off what we have heard today. Help us not to just move forward and hope that we can forget about the conviction that we have felt in these hospitality messages. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would be stirred up in our souls and that we would be changed from the inside out by your Holy Spirit to be people who see how much we have been forgiven and to then be people who love much and forgive much. Oh, Lord, make us hospitable to one another, to others. Oh, Lord, we want to hear from Jesus on that day of judgment. Come, inherit the kingdom. 
We want to hear those words from you, Jesus. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. We don't want to fall short, Lord. We don't want to miss out on eternal life because we made excuses. Because we refused to give up our entire self to you, our entire life. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us lay everything on the altar to commit ourselves completely to your service, to your glory, that our lives might be pleasing and glorifying to you in every way. And Lord, help us to remember the simplicity of hospitality, the simplicity of welcoming you with food, with drink, with clothing, with a warm welcome, and with love. Lord, all these things we ask in your name. Amen.